every day, almost every patient encounter I had, before I walk out of the room, someone would be like, so where are you from? And I'm like, oh, I'm from New York. I know exactly what they're asking, but I, I would refuse to answer. I'm like, oh, I'm from New York. And then they're like, no, 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 where are you from? I'm like, New York, Queens, New York. <laughs> where are you from? Where are your parents from? And I'm like, oh, they live with me in New York. <laughs> I would just keep going. And then eventually, like, they would finally be like, what's your ethnicity? Oh, I'm, my parents are from Korea. I'm from Korea. Like, what else do you need to know? We'll, like, yeah. explore that. <laughs> and then it, it doesn't end with that, right? It would always be like, oh, then are you gonna go back to your country after nursing school? I'm like, okay, first, I'm in medical school, so therefore I will be a doctor. Second, I will not go back to my country because this is my country. Welcome to another episode of Bayside Queens. Sora Lee hails from Queens, New York. She's currently in medical residency in Long Island, specializing in internal medicine. Sora enjoys exploring new restaurants and cafes, shopping, and spending time with her girlfriends. She lives in Long Island, New York, with her husband, Sangwoo. Hi, Sora. I'm so excited to have you on our show. We've been friends since we met in Korean class at Cornell. Um, and you were someone who showed me the ways of college, might I say. <laughs> I've always admired your tenacity and wit, and I'm excited to dig into your story today. I'm excited to be here today as well. Um, so to kick off, can you please tell us where you're from? I'm from Queens, New York. We'd love to dig into your childhood to get an understanding of how your formative years influenced you and overcome life's challenges later on. Can you start by telling us what your childhood was like? My childhood was pretty great, I think. Um, it was just me, my mom, my dad, and my brother in New York, so pretty much my dad was always working and um, my mom was always busy you know like she was a homemaker so she was busy always taking us back and forth from lessons and then on the weekends we would start off with going to McDonald's after school just have you know like playing in the playground and um, she really just made sure we had fun on the weekends and that's like the one thing I remember from my childhood just being happy for Friday TGIF and, <laughs> um, and then Saturday and Sunday she'll have other activities planned for us but then on Monday through Thursday we would have to work hard and whatever responsibilities were given to us you know we tackle them it was nice you also mentioned during Monday through Thursday like you uh, were held to your like responsibilities so what were like some of the responsibilities that you were held to so I guess like the first thing we would do or we started off with was tutoring um, on Mondays through Thursdays, we, I had a designated tutor after school and I would go over a friend's house and it was like a group study session. Mm -hmm. um, so she would kind of help us read our books and teach us how to write summaries on the books. And then that would just be an hour, nothing more. And then like maybe on Monday, I'd go to like swimming class after um, so each day there were at least like two to three activities and some, um, so I did piano, violin. And then you mentioned that like your dad worked a lot. So like, what was the dynamic like with your, uh, like with your mom, it sounds like she was around a lot, but what was the dynamic like with your dad? 
my dad as a kid I just when I think about it now I don't really remember spending that much time with him Mm -hmm. um maybe like starting high school we developed more of a relationship but before that he was always busy working um so we so sometimes my mom would take us to to his store he used to own like a game store Mm-hmm. like um, selling consoles and then eventually like beepers and then cell phones um, so he had a couple stores in like um, Bronx Brooklyn and like Manhattan so then we would go wherever he was and that in itself was a treat because we like get to see our dad in action or just it's just nice seeing him and I think a lot of the work ethics I saw from my dad I learned from so it was nice. I know that you mentioned that you actually went to a performing arts school <laughs> as a kid. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? In all school districts all around the country, you end up going to your zone school. At the time, my zone school in um, Flushing didn't have a kindergarten class. I think they were, and then they were building, building like classrooms and whatnot. So there was something there that we needed to go to a different school like it took a little bit longer to get to okay and this school was a public performing arts school and it was from kindergarten to sixth grade and basically when you're in third grade you choose a talent so it can be instrumental music it can be vocal music it can be dancing drama um, videography like broadcasting systems Mm -hmm. um, just like very broad like a lot of stuff and then um, it's sort you just like sort of decide in third grade because you're like one of the upper classmen so like you decide and then from three to sixth grade you're always designated in those um, talent in that in those talent classes Mm -hmm. Um, and then um, we put on shows like every season and the entire school comes together. So um, when vo- I was in vocal music, surprisingly. That was your talent? Yeah, I can't even sing. I don't even know. See, that's what I'm saying. I knew you like karaoke. <laughs> no, I did not. Like, <laughs> like when we were singing, the instrumental group would like play their instruments. And then like the dancers would come out and dance. Like it would just be like a collective thing. And it was always really fun. You know, after school, we would stay for rehearsals. My mom would always come and take videos of us. And I I think in like sixth grade vocal music went to um, Washington DC through this like program called America Sings. And like, we like sing in front of like in front of like the George Washington monument I think mm-hmm. and it was like a whole thing yeah that sounds really elaborate yeah it it was and like as a kid I didn't think I thought everyone went to performing arts school <laughs> I, I wish I was, wish we all went it sounds like it was really fun yeah it was super fun so I think that's one of the reasons why I loved going to school we all had this one thing in common and studying and like doing well in class was not the main goal it was like you have to try and do everything because it's a performing arts school even if you have your talent you still have to explore the other ones Mm -hmm. and so I, I remember there was one time when we were taking video class and um I was like an anchor for our class and we had to like present the news and it it was really fun overall. 
Yeah. So it sounds like it really instilled like this love of learning for you. And like you associated yeah. that love with like actually going to school, which is, I think, yeah, I would say it's pretty, uh, at least in my experience, like, I feel like that's pretty rare to have that associate positive association with school. Yeah. It's like very like unconventional. So that was done in sixth grade, right? Mm-hmm. And then, so I guess after that, like, was it hard? Did you go to like a regular school after that? So in six, my parents wanted to move to Douglaston, which is like right next to Bayside. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a whole new district. Um, The kids start middle school in sixth grade. Okay. So because I'm still in elementary school during sixth grade, like I was already like kind of embarrassed. I was like, oh my God, I'm not a cool kid. They're going to think I'm like a loser. Oh, because you're still in elementary school. Right, right. Instead of middle school. My parents were like, okay fine like we're gonna start you then like we're gonna move there but we're gonna start with Hagwon so which is like um so it's like an after school program basically that you pay a lot of money for Mm -hmm. um and a bunch of like Asian kids go to learn how to take tests basically (laughs) yeah that's a pretty good way of describing it it's like the best way I can describe it So my mom would pick me up and drive like 30, 40 minutes in traffic just to get me to Hagwon on time. All throughout the ride, I would just be like, I'm dying. My stomach hurts. I can't go. I can't do this. (laughs) It's like super stressed. I think that was the first time I realized what stress was. Mm. And when I got there, um, everyone was already studying for SATs and in sixth grade yeah all these like Korean kids and I'm like where did they come from (laughs) what is this test everyone's talking about what is this Johns Hopkins summer program that they're going to like my mom was never the type to like push me to study like mm-hmm. she always assumed that like assumed I was doing my homework and like she was never like ever a tiger mom yeah um like everything all the all those lessons I was ha- like doing like was all brought on by me requesting I want to learn these things so like going to Hagon was the first time like my mom actually sent me somewhere but only so that I could adjust to middle school Got it. it. Okay. For the purpose of like doing well on the SATs, right? Because I mean, obviously, you're now going to middle school. Mm -hmm. Um. So then, I think that as hard for as hard as it was for me, I think that's when I started picking up like, oh, I need to do really well in school. It went from being something that you kind of enjoyed as for fun, but to being like, oh, wait, now I need to like do well at this. Yeah, I, and then I, I felt competitive. Okay. And I was like, I need to do as well as these kids. Mm-hmm. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna feel stupid. I'm mm-hmm. not gonna like not do well. Like I, I think that's when I first like started getting competitive and thinking I need to like beat all these people. <laughs> Got it. Okay. <laughs> but I still don't know what SAT is. <laughs> That's interesting because I think like I've seen a theme where a lot of your interests and passions and even like focus on school are all self-driven. Like it sounds like your mom really encouraged you to like 
be active, work hard, play hard. She was like very balanced. But at the end of the day, like she might have brought you to this environment, but you were the one that that was like, okay, and like now I'm, I want to step up and do well at this. Well, I, I admire that because I did not have that reaction to Hogwarts. <laughs> I was like, I'm just going for the free bagels with the strawberry cream cheese that I get on Saturdays. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely was not as self-driven. My, I, my mom was the one I think that spurred me on. um so what was it like after you guys like moved to Douglaston and you actually transitioned into I guess middle school at that point Mm, after so once I started middle school as a seventh grader Mm -hmm. I felt like okay now I have to make all these new friends um I just remember thinking the whole time in middle school like number one I need to make friends and number two I need to do well in school Mm-hmm. And I need to go get into all of these honors honors classes because all the Korean kids are in honors classes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those were your priorities. And that was my part. It was like, okay, not so then when I go home, I'm gonna do my homework. And then um for all the tests, I'm gonna study. And then I remember complaining to my parents, like, you know, if I spend all of like seventh grade in a regular class, all my friends are gonna laugh at me. <laughs> so oh uh, like oh my do something so then my mom like joined PTA and then started talking <laughs> to other Korean moms and then and then um one of the PTA president moms were like okay we're gonna talk to the assistant principal <laughs> okay and then got me in got me in to an honors class okay <laughs> like earlier on than I had expected so then from then on, I kind of like, okay, like now my I'm at ease, like I'm less stressed now. <laughs> You're like your own tiger mom. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I, like I, I, but then once that happened and then I felt like, okay, now I can be like the other kids. Like mm. I think I stopped worrying so much. So it was actually kind of your way of fitting in maybe. Cause yeah. You, I self-identified with these other Korean kids at, at the school that were already kind of on this path, of, like honors mm-hmm. and studying really hard. Yeah, it was like, I, yeah, all throughout elementary school, you, I never thought that studying was like the key, you know, mm-hmm. to life and success or whatever. And then you come over here to this different world and everyone's always studying. Yeah. You're like, I need to like, survive yeah, I think it's interesting how studying is like a form of fitting in um in that environment and mm-hmm. um and yeah I guess the at the end of the day like especially at, at that age I could see like it being super important to want to fit in and, and you mentioned like you want to make friends um and that was almost like one way to be in the quote-unquote in crowd so I'm going to transition a little bit to 9-11 so you mentioned that a lot changed in your family after 9-11. Can you tell mm-hmm. us about what happened? 9-11. Um, at that point, my dad um, had to basically like sell all his stores um, mm-hmm. because we were undocumented. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he spent like a couple months like without a job and then um we just started like having all these like financial difficulties and um he had to eventually move to Maryland for to start a new job mm-hmm. and um it was just me my brother and my mom um 
in in uh, Douglaston and um, he would like drive back every Friday to be with us and then drive like early Monday morning to get go straight to work um, so then it that in itself like just being separated from you know not having everyone there I think mm-hmm. was hard and then ultimately my mom started working too um, mm-hmm. and that's around like when I started high school so a lot of like financial difficulties like came up during that time with your dad moving to Maryland and coming back on the weekends and kind of becoming aware of like your financial hardships like did that affect you or like your family dynamic at all in a way um because I think from that's when I started getting really close to my dad Mm -hmm. um, even though we were separated physically yeah uh, because on the weekends he would come home and like spend time with us and he would like make us food and or he would like sometimes we would go to Maryland and hang out with him mm-hmm. so he he took more time to be like present for you know the two of us you know my brother and he um I think he was like also trying to help my mom because she just started working as well after being a homemaker all that time yeah Um, so he's trying to like help her with you know housework when he come you know when he came back and um in that way the family dynamics like kind of changed so it sounds like even though it was a tough time with your dad having to move far away and your family going through those financial difficulties there was actually like a hidden, I guess, um, blessing in it in that in the sense that you guys were able to spend more quality time with your dad, whereas before you, you wouldn't really see him as much because he was so busy working um, yeah. in New York. Yeah. Um, and then that's also when I realized if my parents are working really hard in their respective jobs to keep our family afloat, my responsibility is to be a student and I need to be a good student and I think that's where like everything kind of like I just kind of um, took that and said okay I have to make them proud and I need to really work hard from now on I can't mess up all of that made me a little bit more motivated yeah it wasn't even it wasn't just because of like competition and fitting in anymore it was also like this duty that you felt to your parents yeah so it sounds like you had a lot of like interesting, varied experiences as a kid. Like I would like even with both with the performing arts school and also with like how your mom was like um, really encouraging you of having different different activities, um, but also later like going to Douglaston and like becoming more studious and more motivated in that way. Um and I also, I don't want to leave out like your, do- your dad's uh, work ethic. Like, obviously that seemed to have had an impact on you too. Um, but I guess just like looking at your childhood and like all the different stories that you told us, how do you think um, they have like shaped you as an adult? Overall, I think my parents um, and all of these experiences um, really helped me value working you know you have to work hard but also like enjoy life at the same time like you can't just always like just 
be worried about the things that are happening. If you are able to do your duty as whatever you are, like whatever your role is in life and whatever your responsibilities are, then everything else will like just settle and work out at the end of the day. It sounds like a very healthy mindset. And I would say like, it's like really refreshing to hear that your parents had that mindset with you guys. So thank you for telling us about your childhood. Um, So Bayside Queens is all about digging into the mindset of confident and badass women. I think the best way to do that is is to understand how you overcome life's challenges. So let's dig into three challenges you've had to overcome. So the first one is coming to the realization that you were actually undocumented. Can you tell us about when you came to the moment of like realization that you were actually undocumented? I know the time frame was around um, when I was starting high school. Um, my parents called me um, to, to speak with them and they were like, hey, you know, we don't have a green card. And because we don't have a green card, when you go to college, it might be hard for us to pay for college. Mm-hmm. Like to get financial aid. Right. And I'm like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. And I think I was just in shock. They also said, um, but don't tell anyone. Mm. Because um, if anyone finds out, we can get in big trouble. So then I'm like, oh, my gosh, we're going to be in trouble. Like, I better like keep my mouth shut. And junior year, senior year of high school, when I started applying to college, mm-hmm. it's when I realized, wait, I really might not be able to go to college if no, I can't pay for it. And then mm-hmm. um, started getting really sad because, you know, like up until then, that's all I worked for because that was my role and that was my responsibility mm-hmm. so then like and then I I just really felt like at the time super alone because there was nobody to talk to about this and um I thought I was like the only one yeah because back then like no one ever spoke about this and your parents had to keep it a secret yeah so I thought like we were just like we just need to like hide and like not say a word and I know you mentioned like you thought you thought you were um an American citizen until they first like told you about this in middle school so and and you were born in Korea but you moved to the states when you were really young yeah so I think automatically like as a kid growing up here like I knew I was so I knew I had a Korean citizenship but then like I didn't like piece the two together as a kid because how um, old were you when you moved here? Two. Yeah. So you have like so, no memories of even living in Korea. Yeah. Like none at all. And I, I just remember. So then that's when I'm like, oh, I'm a like in high school is when I'm like, oh, I'm a Korean citizen. And with my status, I'm going to be considered an international student. But that what the heck? I'm not international. Mm-hmm. I grew up here all my life. And now they're not going to let me go to college and give me financial aid. I just felt so much betrayal. But I think the main thing was I just felt really lonely that whole time. And I feel like 
I spent so many hours on the phone with um, college admissions offices, like asking them all these questions. Towards the end of senior year is when I first found out one of my friends is undocumented Mm -hmm. and we like talked about it. And I told her like this, I have been keeping it a secret um, but like, honestly, I can't go to Korea in the summer because this and that. And mm-hmm. she was like, wait, me too. And we just had this moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait, I'm not alone. You've been holding that secret now since you're 13, 14 years old through senior year of, of high school. So like yeah. four or five years. Um, so how did it feel when you finally like found someone else in the same situation and you could talk about it? In a way like a relief because I'm not the only one mm-hmm. and then I think finally I was like wait if I'm not the only one and you're not the only one there must be more people like us mm-hmm. and it's really not fair um there was a little bit of like I think the understanding of like being undocumented and being an alien quote-unquote like I think I start like progressively understood it you know throughout high school I think um, at one point in in um, junior year of high school, I um, learned about the Dream Act, and mm-hmm. um, and that we can, and this was like a new law, co- like new act coming up, and we need to get petitioned, and all these um, immigrant children who are undocumented can um, go to college and not have to worry about their status so much. And so like, Mm -hmm. I, I remember learning that too and thinking, okay, there's more of us, but I never, um, learned firsthand that like someone so close by was like me. Yeah. Um, so I think that was a little bit of a relief. Um, even though I felt sad for both of us, you know? Yeah. And, um, Mm -hmm. um, but when I did get my green card, that was like, um, sophomore year of college. So you were able to like go to college and do all the things that you wanted to do still. Yeah. So I I got really lucky because my parents, they were really, really supportive and they knew how hard I had worked um, until that point. So they really didn't want to disappoint me. And I was like really fortunate enough to even go to like Cornell because they had to really hustle and just get like ask family to help um, Mm -hmm. for financial support and my dad had to work like part-time jobs to just like help pay because we I couldn't get student loans until um soft second semester sophomore year when our green card came out wow so they paid for everything like out of pocket yeah and like um the whole process, I, I believe, um, from the time my parents applied for um, a green card was like more than, I want to say, seven years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a long process. So how did it feel when you finally got your green card? It, like, what? This piece of card? It's a card. <laughs> I think from hearing from your story, and also we had heard a similar story before. Um, one thing that I'm kind of realizing, because I know, like you mentioned, like the status of being an alien. Um, I I can imagine um, that it feels like being undocumented in the States, um, but in your situation where like you came here as a kid, like, you know, it's for all, for all of your purposes, you're 
you are an American citizen, um, that finding out that you're not and that you are a quote unquote alien here, it kind of makes you feel like you're like wrong or something. Like, yeah, like you're out of place. Like you're not supposed to be here. But then you're yeah. like, I am here. But then it's just like, I can imagine it's like a really deep sense of like not belonging. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, because it's it's not even about like uh, belonging in the sense of like, do I fit in with these kids? It's like, it's actually about like, am I allowed to be here? Which yeah. I think as like a human being, we're all allowed to be here. Like we're all here in this world, living life, like doing your thing. Like there's like, value because we are alive but i think that um i can imagine again like that if you don't you're undocumented that sense of like i can be here i'm allowed to be here like that is kind of taken away yeah i remember i mentioned this to my mom she actually said she told me about it when i was in elementary school and i cried for three days because um Basically, the scenario was um, vocal music was going on a trip or to Italy or something. And mm. I really wanted to go on this trip. But my mom was like, we can't go because mm. da, 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 da. And, yeah. and then she said, I cried for three days and I never spoke about it ever again. Oh, that must have been so traumatic for you as a kid. Yeah, but then, like, I don't remember that at all. Like, That's what I'm saying. It's probably why you don't remember it because it was like so like traumatic that you wanted to block it out yeah Yeah. um so I can imagine that like this also left you with some questions about your identity going from thinking you're American to then realizing that you're undocumented so like how has that um journey been for you well I mean it's been a lifelong journey a lifelong battle Mm -hmm. (laughs) um because like once I got my green card, I went to Korea and I'm like, wait, I'm not Korean either. <laughs> yeah, so that was sort of like the beginning of it. And um, I think in college, I also tried to figure out like what my identity was um, just being Korean American, being a Korean American coming from Queens to this like, you know, upstate New York college with all these kids from boarding school and then like the first time I met another um, Korean American friend whose parents had graduated from our school I'm like wait they speak English and they graduated (laughs) from college like that that was like a wow moment for Mm -hmm. me Um, and I think just in general like to be honest, I think I'm still like learning about it and mm-hmm. trying to figure it out. Processing it. Processing it. Um, trying to understand where I stand. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, I think it's ongoing to say the least. I can relate in terms of going to Korea and realizing you don't quite belong. Cause I actually felt that that summer that we were there, we were there for, I was there for summer school. I think you we were there for like an internship or something. Um, but I remember like when I did my internship, like the people who are working there were like asking, they were surprised that I could use chopsticks and that I could eat kimchi. And I was just like, what the heck is going on? Um, so it's, it is a, it is an interesting battle to kind of go between realizing like, oh, am I fully American? 
and for me, like I, um, I, ha- I got citizenship when I was 16. So mm-hmm. I did have citizenship, but I still like, uh, battled with that question of like, am I fully American? I don't feel like I fit in all the time, um, versus am I Korean when I don't feel like I fit in there either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was like really weird when, when I went, when we went to Korea, like people would just automatically know we're not from there. Yeah. <laughs> um, even when we're not like speaking English or anything, you know, they just know right away. Just yeah. Just the way you wear your clothes and the way you make, wear your makeup. Um, and your family members also like, are like, yeah, you're not. Korean. Yeah. 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 It's definitely um, a hard pill to swallow. And I think like, I can imagine like going to Korea thinking like, finally, I'm going to be connected back to the motherland. And then thinking like, wait, they're not accepting me either. (laughs) And it also actually clicked for me while I was talking to you, why you probably started CASA at Cornell, which just for people out there, like Zora started our Korean American Students Association at Cornell um, her sophomore year. And I always like I as someone who was like a participant in that, I always thought that was really fun and cool. Um, but now I realize that it was also like kind of there's probably like something personal for you there too. Yeah, I think it was it was super personal. Um, I I think um I needed I needed to feel like I belonged, and I don't think I ever explained that to anyone while I was in college either. I was a really active member of like just the Asian American community and like working closely with the dean of students um, mm-hmm. in the Asian American Center. Um, and I felt like I, I saw that, you know, there was a KSA um, at Cornell Korean Student Association and a lot of the students um, in that organization were international students, but I also wanted to meet um, fellow um, students like me. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why it was really important for me to like create that space and and I needed to really create that for myself, you know, coming to think of it now. Yeah. Um, I don't think I even realized how important it was to me, like personally at the time. But because I, I thought, you know, like if we can gather everyone and just have a good old time and build this bond that we, you know, share together. Like I just I thought it was more for like I was doing it for everyone else. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, yeah, it was really for me. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's really powerful to like take a situation that you were struggling with, but to actually like do something about it and yeah. um, creating that community. I'm sure you, like, even though it might've started because you had that desire to connect um, with your identity, like I'm sure all other people in that organization also felt that like for me, like um, as someone who was more of a participant it was, it was great to kind of plug into something that was just like, oh, cool, this is here. Like I can join this and not have to fight the uphill battle of like, this doesn't exist. Like, what are we going to do, et cetera? Um, mm-hmm. I think the other thing that's interesting is that like I, from the outside in any group, I'm sure like some people could be like, oh, do you need another club? Like there's already an Asian club, there's already a Korean student association, but like there are like these nuances within um, different groups. And it's not even just like racial identity. I mean, it could be like gender identity or whatever, right? Um, but I feel like there, there are nuances in different groups where like 
there's something powerful about being in a group where you have that a shared experience. Right. And like, I think back then, um, it's not like now where talking about identity and like having these conversations was, it wasn't as easy as it is now. I yeah. Think. I mean, it's still a difficult thing, but um, back then I, I did have to like talk and convince so many people um, to like create this organization because you know, yeah, they didn't understand why I wanted to like split and like create this new organization with the same Korean kids. But I'm like, we're not the same. Mm-hmm. We have we have different backgrounds growing up, and all I want to do is create a space, yeah, that we can um, talk, like we can talk to each other, we can build friendships with, you know, like it's just, it was so like necessary in my mind Mm -hmm. um, at the time Mm -hmm. to have that because um, I went into college wanting a place for myself you know like wanting to be a part of something and yeah I I mean I didn't feel it at first so I made it and I think it was it worked out (laughs) and I and I think anytime like any of us feel that way there's probably other people out there that feel like that too so um, I think that's really awesome that you created that group and I was happy to be a part of it. <laughs> Thank you, Jonah. <laughs> so now we're going to move on to our second story, um, which is about your first job after college. So even though you're in medical residency now, your first job was actually for at Teach for America. Um, yes. So for people who might not be familiar with Teach for America, can you tell us about what that is? Sure. Um, so uh, Teach for America is a nonprofit organization. Um, it is a um, two year experience, two years ex- of experience as a teacher in a low income um, community. Mm-hmm. And you're basically employed by a local um, public school or a charter school. And as a core member, um, as I said, you know, you commit to two years and mm-hmm. then there on after you can continue being a teacher um, or you can um, move on and do whatever it is that you want to do. And, you know, but except like knowing that there is this um, disparity in the education system um, with children not getting what they need to get just because they're from a certain zip code. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so um, I spent two years in LA um, right after college. And so I I was assigned to teach biology uh, because I was pre-med at the time, like it was, it was obvious that I was going to teach some form of science. Um, and I got biology. And what motivated you to, to do this before pursuing medical school? Um, so in college, I had a pretty difficult time, like figuring out or like differentiating whether I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to be a doctor for what it was versus mm-hmm. like 
am I doing this because all the other Asian kids are doing it? And this mm-hmm. is the only thing I know. <laughs> um, I really had to figure that out for myself. And um, also like science was so hard. And I I was like, I maybe I'm just really bad at it. And maybe this is my, not my life path. I'm like, I, maybe I shouldn't do this. I mean, there were so many doubts. Um, so I wanted to kind of throw myself in the fire. Um, I wanted to, um, I, all throughout college, I just was like, I have to save the world. So with that mindset, I think I found the perfect program because, you know, um, a lot of the Teacher of America Corps members are kind of, was like, like, were like me, um, wanted to fix the world. So mm-hmm. it was like, it was a great fit. And I think, um, I just really wanted to test myself and see if I can survive out there. <laughs> I think the that's like world. a, I think that's like a theme we're kind of seeing where you're put in different situations where you're being put up to the test and you're like, okay, I can do this. I'm going to compete and I'm going to win. And I'm just going to like put myself out there. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I just need to needed to prove to myself um, that this was something I could do. Um, and if I can save the kids, then I can be a doctor. That's my <laughs> end. But um, um, so when I got to LA, um, it was, you know, it was not easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How would you describe um, your, your first year on the job? So my first year, uh, so the charter school that I was working for, um ha- went under a financial crisis and one day after school we had a huge town hall meeting they were like we're going to lay off a lot of the teachers as of today so tomorrow oh my god come to work yeah it was like really scary um and they were like we're gonna have to um change in our curriculum and so this is like basically like a month into the year school year um so I'm like still, I'm like still like getting used to my kids and classroom management, you know, you're just mm-hmm. like a young 22 year old teacher. They decided they were going to split me in half. So what I mean is um, they they told me I had to go teach um, a year's worth of biology in half a semester in one school. And then when spring semester comes, I have to teach a year's worth of biology um, in that half a semester. So basically two years of biology crammed in one year. Oh my gosh. That sounds Um, a lot for you and for the kids. it, It was, I think, like way more for the kids. Um, because a lot of these children, they did not have a good foundation. Mm-hmm. So like a science background. So you're really starting from scratch. Basically, our performance as a teacher and a core member is essentially that like your your final exam, right? The, mm-hmm. the citywide exam. So if the students don't perform on that, then you're just not a good teacher. Mm-hmm. is essentially what it becomes but um because I had to teach a year's worth in a semester like I just had to do what I had to do you know just stay focused on the task mm-hmm. it was not easy because you know you're taking these kids who 
don't trust you yet and you have to build trust you have to manage them like you know how old were your kids and how many kids did you have so I had um all the ninth graders okay and I had to teach um so in each class we had 35 to 40 kids that's huge yeah it was a lot and I remember the first school I went to I was teaching in a trailer and um I didn't have a lunch break because I had to use my lunch time to remediate the kids Mm -hmm. and it was a block schedule so I was literally teaching the entire day um and and that doesn't even include like it doesn't even include like lesson planning and grading and all those things no so the lesson planning would come after work you know I go home around like four or five and then um I remember just I would take an hour and just sit in my bed I would just sit there in the dark for like an hour Mm -hmm. and then I would have dinner and then it would be seven o'clock and I would start lesson planning but then also because working in a charter school you have to make sure um like your parents are up to date and they know everything that's going on so I had to make a lot of phone calls and um so I would have designated time periods when I did that there was really like not much of resting but you know I was only 22 so lots of energy still and how many how many hours a day do you think you're working I'd say the whole day (laughs) all waking hours of the day yeah Monday to Friday and then like Saturday and Sunday I would catch up on grading um, making sure everything's like recorded um on the grading book and um Sunday night I would be working on the week's lesson plans um so it was like non-stop I yeah yeah, I remember during this time I mean talking to you about your experience but also just seeing I think in the news that like the hours for Teach for America were as bad as like doing iBanking yeah it's a it's a lot of hours um and can you explain um, what a charter school is and how it's different than like a regular school? So charter schools are basically public schools, but um, are funded by sponsors. Like, um, so you have to have like all these like, um, like promises in a way, you know, um, these are the things, the goals that you're going to achieve for the school and you have to meet those and then you get sponsored and you get, um, funding like that. So like half of, um, the funding comes from the government and the other half comes from like different sponsors. Okay. So there's like this pressure to succeed, perform, to perform in order to continue to get funding. Yeah. So like our school, like we had to, our goal was to get like a hundred percent of the kids graduated and going to college and then succeeding in college. And like, this was like a chant we had to say in class too, like with the kids and like just instilling like college is your next step. It's, it's a possibility. And the kids from my charter school, um, 
they had come from the charter organization, like, you know, from elementary onwards, so mm-hmm. through high school. So they already had the idea, like they already knew what college was. Now you just have to help them realize that this is something possible for them and yeah. that they could do it. And, uh, but, you know, of course, like so many challenges um, yeah. that they have to face um, living some, some of them living in like environments that they do and um, living with like um, single parent households and mm-hmm. just like surviving on the street. It's kind of crazy to hear how there was this emphasis of like college is your next step and it's possible for you, especially in juxtaposition to like what we've been talking about with like um, with Korean kids going to Hagwon when we're like in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, where it's like, yeah, uh, like a, almost like a definitive next step. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of crazy to hear about that disparity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was I, I definitely was very, very grateful for, you know, the privilege that I had, like, just being able to go, yeah, as you said, go to Hakwan, um, have, you know, get all these lessons just because I want them. And Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's definitely a blessing um, that a lot of children out there don't have. And Mm -hmm. um, I think through this, like, I really, truly think that as adults, we have to do a better job in helping the kids. And um, I, I think I really, this, the whole, like, experience of teaching in itself, you know, yeah. not being just part of the core, um, really helped me feel like, there's like so many stories out there that we don't really understand. Um, and as a teacher, you like s- slowly learn about your kids and like what they're going through. Mm-hmm. That's not just in the school setting. Yeah. It is like really important to recognize and um, using that to get them to where they need to be. Yeah, you know, and then, Mm -hmm. you know, once they're adults, and they figure it out, it's like, then they can, you're just like giving them the tools to grow and flourish, you know? Yeah, like you, your job was not just to teach them biology. It sounds like you gained an understanding of the struggles that they were going through as a whole person. And then to kind of tailor what you can with your approach with them, what you teach them to empower Mm -hmm. them to think beyond like their current situation or, or to think about like the future, um, going to college or whatever is next for them in their future. You mentioned a lot of these challenges that you've gone through in that job. Um, what are some ways that you've, um, overcome those challenges and also what are some takeaways like life learnings or what value has this experience brought to you? The one thing that got me through it was um, focusing on why I went there in the first place. And I think mm-hmm. um, understanding like that my educational um, education trajectory was like a blessing and like knowing that not everyone has this. And now I'm here as a um, educated adult um knowing what I know 
knowing mm-hmm. that um, we're really doing disservice to these kids. Like all I really have to do is invest my time and stay like stay focused on the prize, right? Like if my student, if I can get through at least one or two kids in a day, mm-hmm. um, in some way, shape or form, like I'm still making a change. Mm-hmm. So I think that was really important for me to like stay focused on. Cause like year one, I have to say it was like really tough, you know, going from school to school, teaching over like what, 300 kids. Um, and you have to like learn about them. You have to um, contact their family, but in the process, like you learn and you grow and you, um, like establish rapport with them and Mm -hmm. eventually like kids are very like malleable in a way right like they will come to you when they know you care Mm -hmm. so I think that was my main focus like I wanted to be there for them even if I'm not teaching them bio like I just wanted to be their resource Mm -hmm. um if they just want to come and tell me something that's going on like fine yeah that's one step ahead, like one step further. So I think, and then like the biggest takeaway from that was um, like, you can't change the world, um, but you can, you can impact at, at like, at that moment, you can impact like a person, an individual. And if you're passionate enough to do that, over time that one individual will be to become two and three and four and then ultimately like you're really helping someone so yeah. I think with that I decided um I I can survive in the real world mm-hmm. um and I have learned this lesson so that's when I felt safe and I was like okay then I'm gonna apply to medical school and be a doctor <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's amazing. Um, well, first, I just want to acknowledge like what you said about not just, you know, just being a resource for these kids, like being like being someone that they could depend on and just go to. Um, and also, I, I think it's really important what you're saying about like, how we measure impact. And, and like, we all I'm sure like, a lot of us have that desire to change the world and, and impact it for good in some way. Um, but it's like, how do we measure that? And being and and focusing on like, okay, if I can just touch one person with my work, that's like way more approachable than saying, I'm going to change the world in like all the billions of us that are out there. Um, and I like, I can kind of relate to that too. Like even with this podcast, right? I'm like, okay, if I can help like one Asian American girl out there feel more seen, more heard, more relatable, um, able to relate to these stories that we're sharing, like that's amazing because then you're touching a life right. and that life is like so valuable. Um, mm-hmm. And and so I really appreciate that you're calling that out and how that gave you the confidence to um, move on to applying for medical school because like you yeah. had kind of tested yourself in this arena and you're like, okay, this is how I'm going to measure impact. I was able to do it. Um, now I'm ready to go after like, you know, whatever goal you had set for yourself. 
So we're going to move on to our last challenge. And um, this last challenge is talking about medical school, but it's not even the, like, it, it sounds, <laughs> it's not even about the fact that you're in medical school, which I'm sure like was really difficult. Um, but it's about the fact that you were in Alabama specifically <laughs> um, as a part of medical school. So can you tell us like what brought you to Alabama and what was your experience like there? I went to medical school in Alabama because that was the one school I got into. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, it didn't matter to me like where I was to get to the goal that I wanted to get to, because at the end of the day, you got to just study a lot doesn't matter you learn the same things mm -hmm. whatever so I was like I'm gonna be okay and I just got all my stuff and left <laughs> like I mean you just came from New York so it was not like a metropolitan city it was like oh it's definitely town. not definitely not yeah. yeah very 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 small town like okay. everyone knows everyone um it was a it was a good school it was like it was a one of the newer DO schools um mm -hmm. And so like a lot of people were coming from Alabama, Florida, um, Georgia, and then the rest of us, like from New York, California, like, so it was pretty like a, a good mix, I would say. Okay. Um, I mean, we're just living in Alabama. Everything is different, like from accent, culture, um, just the way people think, you know, mm -hmm. just so different. And I just remember like feeling kind of scared mm -hmm. going there um, mm -hmm. just because I felt so different. And mm -hmm. you, and you will know you are like, they will tell you you are different and it's always pointed out. So um, at first I think, I struggled with that part a lot. Like I was final, like I finally the minority everyone is talking about is how I felt. Got it. Okay. So you went through the, your whole life living in places where there were always like plenty of other Asians, Korean Americans, and you never really felt like a, like a minority in the different groups that you were in and different right, environments. Because I in. always surrounded myself with familiar people like people like me and when you go out into the community everyone's always staring at you and really? then um yeah you're different like they look at you like oh wow like you're just like some exotic animal <laughs> but then no one is like blatantly mean to you southern hospitality is a real thing uh -huh. everyone's nice but you're always like I, I was always on edge like and then and then um and then Trump America happened mm -hmm. and then I remember that morning I woke up I saw the news and I just felt this like overwhelming fear mm -hmm. I was like oh no now I'm gonna be targeted here mm -hmm. so like while I'm on campus it'll be okay but then when I go out like like everyone's gonna like, I'm, I was just so scared. That was also because you had kind of felt some of that, like, tension or you experienced those microaggressions before Trump was elected? Yeah, yeah. So, like, people would make comments. They're, like, really silly stuff almost. Like, um, 
one of my classmates, he was like, oh, don't mess with Sora because she knows how to do Kung Fu. Oh, okay. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my gosh, that is so stupid, right? Yeah. That's so stupid. I I I didn't even know how to react at that point, right? Right. But then like, but then another kid would be like, oh, I bet she's good at ping pong. Mm. And I'm like, okay, like now I'm getting angry. Another one would be like, konnichiwa. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, now that's really enough. And yeah. And these are coming from my medical school classmates. Classmates, not even like people just out there in the city. And I'm like super disappointed in how unprofessional they're behaving. And Mm -hmm. this is like, I don't need any of it because I already feel like uncomfortable uncomfortable like the odd man out and Mm -hmm. now they're really making it worse um so I think the first like two years I really felt out of place so I tried really hard to ignore it as much as I could but there was one time I had enough and I stood up for myself in a way like I basically told the guy you're being racist Mm -hmm. this is not acceptable I do not appreciate your comment and that wasn't a joke. I'm not joking with you right now. Yeah, and that is probably the first person I have ever confronted in my life. How did you feel? Um, That's amazing. Great. Great. Because <laughs> the, the next day he was like, oh, dude, I'm like, so sorry. I didn't mean mm. to like offend you. And I was like, yeah, shame on you because you're going to be a doctor and you can't treat your patients like this. Right. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. He, yeah, I mean, he stopped talking to me afterwards and like, but whatever, I did what I had to do and it was the best feeling ever. Um, and I think that's kind of the first time I ever like stood up against someone about my race and like yeah. all these like microaggressions. Um, and I spent a lot of time talking to my friends Um who understood me better about it Mm -hmm, mm because they share these experience um sis too um your friends there or your friends like yeah 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 so like um uh, my new jersey friend um she's indian and then my um texas friend is pakistani Mm -hmm. so like they also had these like um like similar they had similar fears yeah yeah and yeah, and like you go to a coffee shop and you're studying, you look up and there's a guy with a gun in his back pocket. Like it's, it's like okay, <laughs> all right, I'm in a different place now. Don't mm-hmm. mess with me. Yeah, um, that was what the first few years was like, and then ultimately, I um, third year I went to a more like a, a bigger city um, in Alabama. So this was during my. Um, clinical rotation Mm -hmm. so now I was actually in the hospitals rotating Mm -hmm. so every day um, almost every patient encounter I had I think before I walk out of the room someone would be like so where are you from Mm -hmm. and I'm like oh I'm from New York Mm -hmm. and I know exactly what they're asking but I I would refuse to answer and I just I'm like oh I'm from New York and then they're like no 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 where are you from I'm like New York 
Queens, New York. <laughs> Where are you from? Where are your parents from? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, um, they live with me in New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would just, I would just keep going, and then eventually, like, they would finally be like, "What's your ethnicity?" Right. And I'm like, oh, I'm, my parents are from Korea. I'm from Korea. Like, what else do you need to know? Like, well, like, yeah, explore that. <laughs> and then, um they it doesn't end with that right it would always be like oh then are you gonna go back to your country after nursing school I'm like okay first I'm in medical school so therefore I will be a doctor second I will not go back to my country because this is my country and this was every single patient that you were seeing yeah almost like hand like almost every single patient that's like crazy. I would always be stopped for yeah. this question to be asked and um even my like attending sometimes would be really rude about it and ask weird questions and yeah you just have to like roll with the punches I guess like it was a little bit harder because like you're getting graded at the time so <laughs> like you can't really like fight back either oh man um, it's a hard situation to be in yeah, so I think the way I dealt with it eventually was okay, like this is what these people know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're genuinely curious mm-hmm. because they don't know. Yeah. Like in, it's ignorance, right? Ignorance is bliss. And yeah. then you see someone different and you want to question it. And um, I did realize like, despite these like microaggressions and these like weird comments and questions like you're all you're in a new place in a new like bubble where the culture is completely different Mm -hmm. so I'm like I also need to respect that also right and like kind of meet them halfway because then if every time I get upset because someone's gonna make these comments or question me um I can't live through that, right? It's like a lot of your energy. Stressful. Yeah. Yeah. It's like too stressful. So then like, I think that was my coping mechanism. Like I'm like not validating their like actions or whatever, but like, I'm like, okay, this you're is giving where them, you're coming from. Yeah. You're giving them the so, benefit of the doubt and acknowledging right. where they're coming from. Right. So I think that was my biggest like, biggest um thing living in Alabama I just have to like accept that reality over there yeah and um and recognize when you're really like attacked or if someone really insults you or like are saying it in a mean way or whatever and then kind of um fight for yourself but then if there's like if someone's like I don't know it's like kind of hard to you were um, like, you were choosing your battles and it, right. and also it kind of like makes sense that you stood up to like a classmate that you have to see and that, you know, versus like these patients that you might've only seen once and it's not worth your time or energy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm curious, like, um, how you think this has, a, this experience has affected you? Because again, we mentioned how like 
you were in a lot of situations where you were not the minority or at least didn't have the experience for a lot of your life. And then this was like two, three years of your life that you were in Alabama, that you had those like intense experiences of it after you're an adult, like in your, um, in your like late twenties, early thirties. So how do you think this experience has affected you? Um, I think in a way I'm like now, I guess from the moment I moved there, I felt like always like hypersensitive and like hyper aware and anything anyone makes a com like if anyone makes a comment about like me and or just any like yeah anything mentioned I would like I would react. just be like oh my I react immediately and I think um and I was like quick to like be like oh my god they're just saying this because they're racist mm-hmm. you know but um and I think I'm still a little bit I'm still again in that process like I'm still trying to like cope with it but because like Long Island is very um much similar in mm-hmm. a way mm-hmm. um I thought like coming back to New York I would not see any of it but obviously it's not um in some ways I think New Yorkers are way more like they're cruel um like more blatant so- about it it's not sm- uh, hidden behind the smile mm-hmm. <laughs> that you have to interpret so much, but um, yeah. So I think I'm like I think I definitely, as I said before, um, it, despite the hypersensitivity and like um, being defensive, I think I'm I have learned to like yeah, as we said, choose my battles in a way. I yeah. guess like I don't. I don't know like it's just so tiring to react to it every time yeah I I, so I can I can really relate to this experience because I think similarly I also just naturally was surrounded by a lot of like communities um growing up and in call in high school college whatever uh, where I had a lot of Asian American friends around me and then it wasn't really until I mean, my first job in corporate America, I definitely like was like out of college and my first job hearing some racist comments and being like, what? I thought, I thought racism was done. Like, what is the, what are these weird comments that I'm getting? Um, But then in grad school, I went to grad school and um, I I went to grad school in Berkeley. There's a ton of Asians there. Uh, There are a lot of Asian Americans there. Um, But like, I, I was the only Korean American woman in that program. And I think it was my first time like experiencing that. And I made a lot of friends with people who were like not Asian. Um, and even in that environment, like very quote unquote woke environment in Berkeley, um, very highly educated people. Like I still experience that, like those little comments and digs that make you aware that you're different. And it was really hard. I think it it was like really hard to experience that um, as an adult, Um, even though I imagine it's so hard to experience as a kid too. But I think for me, like going through life, thinking that uh, the America you're in operates one way and then actually experiencing it a different way as you get older, it also like made me more hyper aware 
more like hypersensitive and like sometimes, yeah, more reactive and kind of deciding like, do I speak up for myself? Do I not speak up for myself? Do I want to make a scene? Like all of these questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm at a point now where I'm like, yeah, I want to do what I can do to help improve the situation, a la podcasts or whatever things um, we're all pursuing. But also I do want to not be so hypersensitive to save my own energy <laughs> and to like yeah, and protect myself ultimately. Right. Like, I, so ultimately, like you do what you can. It's like, I guess my life's motto. There were so many times also like in medical school when um, I would complain to Sangwoo, my husband, like this is happening and these people are saying these comments to me and I'm like angry. And he would always be like, well, then you, you have to do something about it. But I'm like, but it's not going to be fixed. Mm. Like, so what do I do? Um, and so like when I spoke up to that guy, it was like, it was tremendous to me. Eventually, like I met a bunch of, um, I guess girls in the, in the class, um, in my class and the class below us, like we um, had this like microaggression, like a seminar in a way. Mm-hmm. We just like sat there and like talked about everything, like what microaggressions were and like what the experiences were. And even like in that hour or two that we t- talked about it, it was like so empowering, you know? Like yeah. sometimes I just feel like even if you can't, say it to the person who has insulted you directly talking about it with someone else um, who has that shared experience can just make you like feel that much more powerful and yeah like you know like the wounds maybe more relieved yeah 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 and I'm thinking that you know it's like almost as you get older and you experience more like you like we become more aware of both what's working, but also what's not working and the things that are broken. And, um, you know, one perspective can be what, like, how are we can't fix this? Like, what are we going to do? But the other perspective Mm -hmm. is like, okay, like acknowledge that that's the case. Now, Mm -hmm. what can we do to make a difference? And because we are the adults now, I feel like it is our responsibility um, to do what we can to make it better for future generations or whatever. Like, you know, if some little girl in the future doesn't even question that she belongs, amazing. Um, <laughs> and I think from this third story, and again, from all of your stories, um, it's it's been really great to hear about, like, I guess kind of focusing on what you can in order to, like, make that impact, including, like, how you're going to define um, even what that impact is and what, mm-hmm. like, your success, your success criteria are but it's definitely all um, a work in progress. And I hope for a better future for for more Asian Americans in the future. It's it's just really impactful to share your stories and for people to listen to the stories because I don't think people realize like how, how different everyone everyone else is yeah Um, especially as adults like we like go out we go to work every day but like how often do you hear their stories like yeah co-workers do you really know them like yeah what's their background like 
I mean, of course it, it takes time, but it's really rare to come by. And, um, and I think that's why people like, you know, like people resort to reading and listening to podcasts because everyone wants to hear, um, someone like them. And yeah. A reflection of themselves. Right. Exactly. I'm curious, like, I guess to that classmate or to people that like are ignorant. Um, so I think we gave some, uh, we have some examples of what questions not to ask. What are questions that are okay to ask? Yeah, I guess like to start out, it's okay to ask someone um, what their ethnicity is. Yes. Or, um, because I, that's actually like, um, it was actually really interesting because um, my friends didn't realize that was okay. And I'm like, no, that's better than asking someone, no, where are you really from? <laughs> my classmates didn't realize that they can just ask, like, what's your ethnicity? They, they thought, thought that, that was, was more sensitive, insulting. Oh, yeah. okay. And I was okay. like, no, like, that's totally fine. Yeah. Or you're like, where are your ancestors from? I mean, that's a little awkward, but. <laughs> I got that question. I was at a massage the other day and the lady was like, where are your ancestors from? And I was like, I've never you know, but that, for that person, like you have to give them a little bit of props because that person really thought about it. I, I actually felt like, um, it felt <laughs> kind of like a spiritual hippie massage. So I was like, Oh, she's kind of hippie. I'm into this. Where are my ancestors from? <laughs> <laughs> that was her being like woke, you know, I know, but in my mind, I was like, I think they're from the universe. <laughs> <laughs> from this world (laughs) yeah where are we where are any of us from (laughs) okay so we so it's okay to ask what's your ethnicity I feel like we're definitely like progressing to better times and more representation but also like all this stuff happening yeah Um, it's like one step forward one step back one step forward yeah 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 Well, thank you for sharing your third and last challenge with us. We're going to close up with two fun bonus questions. So the first one is, do you have any quotes that you live by or think of often? Work hard, play hard. Balance is really important. Um, We often forget to do it. Last question. What advice would you give to your past self? Um, Don't worry so much things will always work itself out yes it will yeah um cool well Sora thank you so much for being on our show we really appreciated having you and I think I learned a lot just from talking to you and I love the go get it go get them attitude (laughs) with the work hard play hard so um it's the weekend so I I hope you're gonna play hard now If you've enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a review on our Spotify or wherever you listen to our podcasts. You can also purchase episodes with bonus content where all proceeds will be donated to the Stop AAPI Hate campaign. Please visit our Instagram page at Bayside Queens Podcast for more info.